0: Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis.
1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, Trivial Pursuits. As we're heading into a long weekend here in the U.S., we figured it was a good time to have a little bit of fun. A couple of our podcast regulars joined me as we invited Mike Cois, the author of a recent book of tax trivia, to test our knowledge. Stick around after the quiz to learn more about Mike and how this book came to be. Enjoy. <laughs> Joining me now is Mike Cois, Senior Tax Counsel at Energy Services, and he's the author of the book American Tax Trivia: The Ultimate Quiz on US Taxation. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. And to join in the fun and help me answer Mike's questions, I'm joined by Tax Notes contributing editor Robert Goulder and chief correspondent Stephanie Sung Johnston. Bob, Stephanie, you ready to go? We're ready. Are you ready? Uh, I hope so. I
0: was
1: born ready. Well,
2: all right, Mike, why don't you start us off? Well, I'm uh, glad to be here today. And so we're going to talk about American tax trivia. I've got uh, four different chapters from the book that I want to try to quiz you guys and gals on and see how much you know about American taxation. So let's start with the fun stuff. Let's do some famous quotes. I always like quotes. I try to pick some good ones from the book. So we'll start out with what I think is an easy one. What U.S. federal judge made the following statements as part of his or her court decision? Quote, anyone may so arrange his affairs that his taxes shall be as low as possible. He is not bound to choose that pattern which will best pay the Treasury. There is not even a patriotic duty to increase one's taxes. Unquote. Is it A, Antonin Scalia? B, Richard Posner? C, Ruth Bader Ginsburg? D, Thurgood Marshall, or E, Learned Hand. All right. Now, there was something I learned in
1: law school, and that was, whenever you find a pithy quote, err on the side of Learned Hand. That said, anybody else have an idea? Can I do a write-in vote for Oliver Wendell Holmes? (laughs) No. Okay, then I'll go
0: go for Learned Hand, too. I'm going to say the answer is always C, so... It's an old quote. Is it an old mm-hmm. quote? Okay, then I go, I'm going to go with you guys. I, I think it goes back decades and I think it's like a hundred year old quote. So you'd have to pick a judge that that's a hundred years old.
1: Yeah, uh, honestly, that was just my rule of thumb in law school. There's a great quote. It's learn in hand. It's always learn in hand. So let's go with learn in hand.
2: How's that? All right. E-final answer, right? Learned at hand. And that is correct. Very All right. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that would be an easy one because it's been around a long time, like Bob said. And I actually quoted that in my application when I applied for uh, the LLM program at Georgetown. I guess it worked because they took me or they were desperate either way. Yeah. I mean,
1: it, it sounded familiar and it just felt like that mm-hmm. feels like one that I, that
2: that felt right. Yeah, I like I like what you said about if it's a pithy quote, you know, it's probably him. So it's kind of like Mark Twain, right? You just you just it's a it's a good guess, right? So let's go with another one here. What rap artist was quoted with the following line? Quote, only two things that scare me are God and the IRS, unquote. It's A, a Dr. Dre, B, Snoop Dogg, C, Ice Cube, D. Fifty Cent or E Grandmaster B?
3: Oh man, I should know this. I'm going to say Fifty Cent.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm lost here because you know I heard a rap artist and tax problems. I was thinking DMX, but that's not him.
3: There are a lot of rap rap stars with tax problems. To be fair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, Bob, do you have any idea?
0: I want to write in vote for Eminem. <laughs> <laughs> My Detroit homie. Come on. No, I have no idea. Either 50 Cent or Snoop Dogg. It doesn't seem like something Snoop Dogg would say out loud. He might think it, but would he say it? So I don't know. If I had to choose, I'd say 50 Cent. All right. Do you want to just
1: want to call it 50 Cent?
3: I was going to go my original choice then, 50 Cent. All right.
2: Let's do that. All right. So 50 Cent is your final answer? Yes. That is incorrect. Oh, it's actually a Dr. Dre
3: Oh, okay.
2: So, how about an international tax quote? We need one of those uh, for Dave. I think Dave likes the international stuff.
1: You got three international tax people on here.
2: Oh, okay. Uh, Oh, there you go. All of you. That's perfect. No pressure, anything. All right. So, you you ought to know this quote. This should be a no-brainer. Okay. So, the question is: What TV talk show host from the 2000s era said the following quote? Tax day is the day that ordinary Americans send their money to Washington, D.C., and wealthy Americans send their money to the Cayman Islands, unquote. Was it A, Jimmy Kimmel, B, James Corden, C, Jimmy Fallon, D, Bill Maher, or E,
3: Conan O'Brien? I'm going to say Bill Maher.
1: See, I'm, I'm thinking Jimmy Kimmel only because of the joke structure.
3: Now, you're really overthinking this. <laughs>
0: No, the phrasing, the phrasing of the the syntax, the verbs and nouns, the use of the gerund, all that's, yes, I, I, it feels like a, a, a Jimmy Kimmel
1: statement.
3: I'm going to go with Bill Maher, just to be contrarian.
1: All right. Well, I think you're outvoted. Two of us have Jimmy Kimmel and one has Bill Maher. What, what do we got here? The final
2: answer is A, Jimmy Kimmel.
3: Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, <laughs> see, I told you I was going
0: to be terrible at this. Editors, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> see, I don't actually know things. I just have these rules of thumb. So, you know, when we're talking about pithy quotes, you know, learned hand, when when we got the joke structure, I got I got Jimmy Kimmel there.
2: All right. So, if you want, we can move on to history. Is history good now? Please, history. All right. Here we go. So, the this question is which US president created the IRS? Is it A, Theodore Roosevelt? B, George Washington? C, Ulysses S. Grant, D. Herbert Hoover, or E. Abraham Lincoln.
0: When was the first income tax? If we can figure out when the first income tax is, presumably you could figure out when the IRS or its forbearer and in interest was created, because presumably you'd need some kind of a executive branch administrative agency to enforce the tax. And if I listen enough to Joe Thorndike, who knows everything about history, he would say that we briefly had a type of an income tax during the Civil War. I'm not sure it was ever collected. (laughs) I don't think it raised much money. I'm I'm not sure they actually called it the IRS. But there was a type of income tax around during the Civil War. But if you're looking for an agency that was actually called the IRS... That would be much later, something like maybe the Hoover
2: era. And just to clarify, it, it doesn't have to be called IRS. It's just the agency that acts as the IRS, whatever the name was.
0: OK, well, then I've given my pitch for, uh, for, for Abraham Lincoln. I think Lincoln is a, is a good bet here. OK, I'll go with you guys. Now, uh, Joe Thorndike would also say that the income tax as it existed then uh, was unconstitutional. So you didn't have a constitutional income tax until like 1913 or so. Right.
2: But I digress. Okay. And you are all correct. It was Abraham Lincoln. So good job on that one.
3: That would be really embarrassing if we did not know that though. Right. (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) He has such an awesome reputation though. You know, all the wonderful things he did for the country. You wouldn't think that he would create this, what became a monstrosity and, you know, sucks all the tax dollars from all Americans, you know, they, you know, everyone loves to hate the IRS. So even though they, they obviously play an important role in government, you just don't equate the two, Abe eh? Lincoln, IRS, it just kind of, it throws people off, or at least I would think so. All right. Next one, and this is kind of related to one of the topics for what we just discussed, actually. So here's, this is a true or false. The IRS was originally named the Board of Stamps and Taxes. True or false. You know, it's got the
0: word board in it. And way back then, everything the federal government did they called the board of fill in the blank. So I think I'm gonna go with true just because it has the word board in it. Can I convince you guys?
1: True. I'm I'm having trouble coming around to believing that this was ever a good name chosen for something. But then again, it is old timey. Well, it's got stamps <laughs> in it. How can you
0: argue with stamps? And that's like the proof that you paid. You don't have like an invoice or a receipt or something from TurboTax. How do you know you paid your yeah. tax? They gave you a little stamp. Mm-hmm. What you did with it, I don't know. But all right, I'll, I'll,
1: I'll, I'll come. I'll come. I'll, okay, come on, I'll, I'll come on. I'll come with you. All right. So true.
2: All right. <laughs> the panel says true. It's actually false. Uh, Uh, Bob, you led me astray. It was called the Bureau of Internal Revenue.
1: See, they landed on something really, they landed on something pretty close to the right name at the beginning.
2: Next would be, oh, I like this question. be interesting to see if y'all know this one because I did not. Here's the question. What invention was created by an IRS service center employee in 1961 and is still used today to sort millions of paper tax return forms? Is it A, the spaghetti sorter, B, octopus organizer, C, Freeman filer, D, tingle table, or E, Arthur Anderson shredder? The octopus one, because we
0: all know that octopuses are mm-hmm. really smart. Mm-hmm. I like octopuses, so I'm going to go with octopus. I don't even know what came after the word octopus. <laughs> I'm going with the one that mentions octopus in the title.
1: Yeah, if, if I've got nothing better to hang my hat on, it's a great name. Eight legs. How can you go wrong?
2: The answer is D. Tingle table.
3: Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> okay, that sounds like a disease.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was actually created by a gentleman named James Tingle. He invented the sorter while he was employed at an IRS service center in Georgia, and he built a prototype in his backyard. and he And he was later. It was first tested in a service center in Georgia. And the invention greatly reduces the time that it takes for the mail opener to remove the contents and stick you know the envelopes here and the contents there and file them away for action so if you ever google tingle table you'll see what looks like a sort of a semicircle around the on the sitting on the desk and it's like an inbox and an outbox you know where you put mail and they're stacked up one on top of the other and there's like six of them in a semicircle. so there's like 12 different boxes and it just helps people sort the mail or the tax returns when they get them. And that's all it does, but it's kind of an ingenious contraption. I, I assume it's used less and less these days because most people are doing, of course, you know, electronic filing, but it's still being used today is, is what I was uh, found out. All right, so I think that'll do for history. Let's move on to politics. All right, good stuff here. This is one that I did not know. So it will be interesting to see how you folks do.
3: I mean, we utterly failed with single tables, so I don't know.
2: <laughs> All right, so this is a true or false question. In 2021, the president of the United States is not entitled to any special income tax breaks on his presidential salary and compensation. True or false?
1: Mm. True. Feels like it should be true.
0: I don't know. The United States of America is the land of tax breaks. (laughs) There's going to be a tax break for everything, like breathing and oxygenating your blood. I can't believe there isn't some special tax break, some loophole somewhere that doesn't inert solely to the benefit of the President of the United States.
1: I don't recall on my 1040, the line, the, the box to check if you're president, so you get the extra break.
0: Maybe that's the tax break. You, you get your own 1040. <laughs> I don't know. I'm thinking there's something there.
1: I'm going with no. I gotta, I gotta say, I, I don't think so.
2: Well, I guess I'm outvoted. So it sounds like you're mixed bag. Some of you say true and some say false.
0: Yeah. So I'll go along with the others, but just note the reservation that I'm skeptical. Here.
2: <laughs> so the answer, actual answer is false. So there's two special tax perks that the president gets. One of them is a non-taxable annual travel account of $100,000 a year. And the other is a non-taxable annual entertainment account for $19,000 a year, which I assume they use for Disney plus and Netflix subscriptions and wholesome things like that. So, uh, there there you go. You get a couple of nice perks in addition to the nice salary if you make it to the White House. What was the travel budget? A hundred grand? Yes. Think of all the tax conferences
0: you go <laughs> to. I mean, that that might cover EFA <laughs> right there. Who knows?
2: All right, Bob, you win this one. You should have gone with Bob. All right. So next one. Oh, this is an interesting one. Okay. So. Which state below declared war on Germany three months before the United States officially entered into World War II in an effort to give its military residents a monthly bonus without the need to pass a new tax to pay for it? Is it A, Vermont, B, Texas, C, Florida, D, California, or E, New York? All right. So a state
1: declared war. Yes
3: that's i feel like texas because you don't miss texas
0: but if texas was going to declare war wouldn't it declared war against oklahoma <laughs> i mean germany's a long way away i'm thinking maybe new
1: york state i i'm i'm kind of in the new york state frame of mind on this because it it feels new york i mean I, I know the sort of independent streak of texas declaring war and deciding to republic yeah i'm torn
3: i guess new york is closer to germany than texas yeah. is.
1: honestly i i I, w- I would go i could go either for new york or texas
0: were there more tax attorneys living in new york state or in texas probably new york state yeah that's what i'm
1: thinking if it, it feels like given relative tax rates the benefit would be better out of new york so new york all right let's try new york
2: the actual answer is a vermont what wow that's bold <laughs> So in 1941, Vermont wanted to give its military residents a $10 per month bonus. And in order to do so during peacetime, they would have to raise, they would have to pay for it with the new state tax. And they didn't want to do that. So they had to expand their definition of armed conflict to include President Roosevelt's order for the Navy to shoot first if they encounter a German warship. Huh. so that's how they got around it and they were able to you know pass it without a new tax interesting all right so one more for politics this is a fun one actually i could have put this in other chapters as well true or false question for y'all the cartoon figure wearing a black top hat and tails with white mustache on the famous monopoly board game is modeled after the u.s secretary of treasury from the 1920s era is that a true or false statement true yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. Ah, and you would be correct. It was Andrew Mellon, Andrew Mellon, who was a U.S. Secretary of Treasury from 1921 to 1932. He was also, before he became U.S. Treasurer, he was like an old tycoon. He was in banking and other industries, aluminum. So, they might have chosen his character because of that more so than his uh, position as U.S. Secretary of Treasury. But I just thought that was interesting. Alright, so now we got the odds and ends, which is kind of a mixed bag of different fun facts, if you will. This has an international tax flavor to this question. All right. So the question is true or false. The United States is the only country in the world that taxes its non-resident citizens on worldwide income. True or false?
0: Well, we're not the only one because Eritrea right. does it as well. Yes. <laughs> You're talking about residence-based taxation versus citizenship-based taxation. And uh, I, I last time I researched this, there were Two countries that had uh, citizenship based taxation, the US and Eritrea. So, for that reason, Mike, <laughs> I'm going to say false. False.
2: <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. That boy, <laughs> You hit the nail on the head with that one, Bob. Good job. You came for one in our wheelhouse there.
3: Yeah. I was <laughs> nodding. I was nodding along. I, I was nodding along.
2: I was like, oh, yeah, I know this one. There you go. All right. Let, what about this one? Let's see if you can do this one. It's not international tax, but it's interesting all the same. It's another true or false. In 2021, the IRS does not yet have a mobile phone app. True or false?
3: True. I mean, true. I don't remember one.
2: I want to go true, I guess.
1: I mean, they, they, I they, there is always that discussion about how old the computer systems are. So I'm just thinking that an app wouldn't be the primary thing that they would.
0: If the IRS had an app, wouldn't somebody have hacked it? Wouldn't there be ransomware out there? So, yeah, I, 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 I think they don't have one.
1: I would be suspicious if I found an IRS app on the, uh, in the iTunes store.
2: Stephanie, what say you? I mean, I don't think there's an app. So it sounds like you're all in the, an agreement. There's no app, so it's false. Or it's true, I'm sorry. Yep. The correct answer is false. The IRS launched IRS to go in 2011, and they can use it to keep track of their refund status and you know, that sort of thing. I'd never heard of it until I researched this book.
3: Oh, interesting. So to be fair, we all we're our, our minds are all international tax anyway. So good excuse. Good
4: excuse. Yeah,
1: it's, yeah well, we're going <laughs> to hide
0: behind that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I knew they had a Web portal called called IRS to go or, or documents to go, but I didn't know it was in, as an app.
1: I would I would make the argument that 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 is a a public relations issue of getting the getting the marketing out there.
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) Very good. So the next one is also a true or false question. One of the astronauts on the Apollo 13 mission forgot to file his federal income tax return before he was launched into space on April 11, 1970.
3: True or false? That sounds so crazy. I think it's true.
1: It, It was in the movie.
3: Which
1: movie? Apollo 13.
0: <laughs> That's what he meant when he said, Houston, we have a problem. The original quote was, Houston, we have a tax
1: problem. <laughs> <laughs> so assuming, uh, uh, assuming that Ron Howard did not lead me astray, I'm going to go with this is, uh, this is true. Th- Wasn't it, was it the Kevin Bacon character? I think so. Uh, so I'm, I, if, if I'm wrong, I'm blaming Ron Howard and Kevin Bacon.
2: So it sounds like you all say it's true, correct? True. The right answer is true. Very good. It was in the movie. Uh, Astronaut Jack Swigert uh, asked NASA Mission Control, "Uh uh-oh, have you guys completed your tax return? Then Commander Jim Lowell followed up with, how do I apply for an extension? And then Mission Control burst into laughter, and then Swigert replied, it ain't too funny. Things kind of happen real fast down there. And I do need an extension. Again, Jack was met with raucous laughter. Luckily, Jack was considered a U.S. citizen abroad, which qualified him for an extension to file his taxes late, but penalty free.
3: I like that. A citizen abroad. Yeah. That's about as far as you could go, I guess.
1: (laughs) It would be interesting if the interpretation was you actually had to arrive at another place instead of just be in transit. Because then they would' have had a ser- another serious problem.
2: It's kind of an international tax cre- question think about
3: it. Intergalactic tax question, really? <laughs> like.
1: Interplanetary tax, that's our next angle.:
2: <laughs> All right, so another true or false. Got a bunch of them in this chat.: When the IRS started requiring taxpayers in 1987 to include social security numbers for their dependents, aged five and above, approximately seven million children immediately vanished when compared to the total dependence listed in the prior year's tax returns. True or false?
3: I'm gonna say true.
2: Yeah, I, I'm, gonna
1: go, I'm gonna go with true, assuming that the 7 million is the correct number and it's not a trick there.
0: I'm gonna go with true and I think 7 million is actually lowballing it. I'm surprised it's not more like 20 or 30 million disappearing kids.
2: All right, so it sounds like everyone's in agreement with true. The correct answer is true. When this new rule took effect, each dependent qualified for a nineteen hundred dollar exemption. The sudden shrinkage in total claimed dependence resulted in an extra two point eight billion with a B of federal income taxes collected that year. Mercy.
1: Huh. <laughs> that is a whole different kind of tax gap. That's a whole like a human gap.
2: <laughs> All right, one more. Oh yeah, we'll end on a good one here. Okay. What state below imposes a five-dollar per customer tax on strip clubs that serve alcohol? Is it A, Texas, B, California, C, Florida, D, Louisiana, or
3: E, Vermont? I'm not falling for the Vermont trap this time. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with Florida.
1: Oh, I think this one's Texas. I
3: don't know. I just think Florida's,
1: it seems appropriate for
0: Florida. Bob, what say you? <sighs> Well, it comes down to me and strip clubs. How did I end up in this position? <laughs> not Vermont, because I'm upset with them for declaring war on Germany. Let's see. Uh, not California, because it would be more than $5. If it was California, it would be like $50. A five? I mean, $5. Okay. Ugh. What did you guys say, Texas or Florida?
1: I have a notion. I'm thinking this is Texas. This feels very Texas.
3: Yeah, maybe Texas, because Florida was kind of low tax rate. They don't like taxes. So I
0: don't know. I I think it was one of the ancient uh, Greek philosophers or somebody who said, you know, if you want more of something, uh, you subsidize it. And if you want less of something, you tax it. And I have a hard time believing that 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 Texas would want uh, fewer strip joints. They might be like subsidizing it. They may be like you show up, you knock on the door and the state gives you five dollars. So, uh, for that reason, I'm going to go with Florida.
2: Sorry, Dave Stewart. All right. All right. I'll
3: go with Florida, my original choice. Well, it's kind of a
2: mixed bag, but you, you all landed on Florida? Yeah. The correct answer is A, Texas. Oh. You shouldn't have listened to me. You shouldn't have listened to me, Dave.
3: No, you're, you, you've got your, your logic. logicless sound. You slung me.
2: So, in 2007, the Texas legislature passed the Sexually Oriented Business Fee Act. So, I guess technically it was a fee, not a tax, but which imposed the fee on businesses that provide live nude entertainment and allow patrons to consume alcohol. Revenues collected go to the sexual assault prevention programs and health insurance coverage for low income people. This poll tax was challenged in court, and the Texas Supreme Court upheld it as constitutional in 2014. And, fun fact, you don't have to pay the fee in singles. Womp, womp, womp. <laughs> so that's all I have. I hope you guys enjoyed that.
1: Yeah, this was a lot of fun. That was super fun. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this is great. And thank you, Bob and Stephanie, for helping me and in some cases, hurting me in answering these questions. Our pleasure. That was a lot of fun. We
4: should
3: do it again sometime. We learned a lot today.
1: Absolutely. Mike, why don't you stick around for a bit and we'll talk a little bit about you and a bit more about your book. Sounds good. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. The Graduate Tax Program at the UC Irvine School of Law is the number one ranked graduate tax program on the West Coast and number five ranked program nationally. It offers a unique curriculum that gives students a chance to develop both deep knowledge and the practical skills needed to practice law both here in the U.S. and around the world. It's a one-year, full-time program held at the UC Irvine campus. Applications are open now. The deadline to apply for non-U.S. applicants is February 1, 2022. U.S. and U.S.-based international applicants must apply by July 1, 2022. To apply today, visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law.uci.edu slash gradtax. Well, Mike, that quiz was a whole lot of fun. So I'd like to learn a little bit about you. Uh, Could you tell listeners a bit about yourself and and what you do in tax?
2: Sure. So I got my LLM in tax, uh, I guess it was in 1996, so about a quarter century Go wow! It makes me sound old just to say it out loud. But so I got my LM from Georgetown, and I went into the Big Six accounting back then. It was Big Six, and I did that for a year, and then I went to a small law firm in Amarillo, of all places, and did that for a year. A little bit of tax and corporate work, and then I've been at Energy Services pretty much for twenty about twenty three years now. And uh, I, I work out of the Woodlands, and I really love it there. The people are fantastic. We have a, a pretty good sized tax group. And uh, there's folks that do different things. I do federal income tax planning. And so I help them with that and help structure deals and uh, work on all kinds of stuff, securitization of, you know, big storm costs and purchasing power plants and that sort of thing. So really enjoy the work and the people. And yeah, it's been a good run so far. All right. So, so
1: one question I'm always curious about is what sent you down the path of working in tax?
2: Great question. So when I was, uh, I guess, in law school, getting my JD, uh, I was in my first tax class, never dreamed in a million years, I would want to, you know, one day be a tax geek. So I took that first class, James Beard was the professor. And I just immediately, I just fell in love with I thought, Oh, this is what I'm gonna do the rest of my life. I really loved the challenge. And, you know, the code, you know, it just seemed really interesting to me. I just thought, yeah, this. And so I started taking every tax class they offered in the JD program that, that was available on my schedule. I think I took like four or five of them. And then afterwards, I thought, well, I can't be a tax attorney without an LLM or a CPA or I need some other credential. So that's when I went on to, to study it at Georgetown. But uh, yeah, there's just something about the subject that clicked for me. And I really enjoy it. And, you know, I just never dreamed I would do this. But here I am 25 years later, I still love it.
1: Yeah, that seems to be like a a universal thing. It always goes back to to one professor and just falling in love with it when you didn't expect to cuz I don't think anybody starts out saying that's where I'm going. Exactly. All right, so how did you end up writing a book on tax trivia?
2: So, I I've been writing books about one a year for the last 5 years and then last year I was I was, you know, the pandemic hit, 2020, and I still hadn't decided what to write about. And so anyway, one thing that happened during the pandemic was, of course, everyone's office building shut down and we were all sent home and we had to work exclusively from home. So here we are in the summer of 2020. So it's been whatever, three or four months and we haven't seen each other except there's Zoom meetings or WebEx and, you know, start to miss your, your coworkers and the camaraderie that you have. And WebEx is nice, but it's not the same. And then one of my coworkers, Amanda McGuan, she had this idea that we should have like a work happy hour, like a Zoom call after work. And just, you know, she had some topic, it wasn't even tax related. Uh, and so we all enjoyed about an hour of each other's company just on a Zoom call after work one day. And I thought, what the heck? I think I can do this. And so the next month, still in the summer of 2020. I came up with the idea i'm going to do tax questions and i, and I spent about three hours researching 25 questions you know tax related questions true false or, or multiple choice and then when we had the actual work happy hour uh i spent about an hour with them and we had a blast we were laughing giggling kind of like what we just went through uh and so it was a really good time and i thought this is an interesting concept and we never did it again but it stayed on my mind because i guess we got busy with other projects and so lo and behold, I finally decided, you know what, my next book needs to be about that. And I will tell you, it was a hard decision because it's a lot of work to write a book, obviously. And when I look on Amazon, there is zero tax trivia books. I couldn't find a single one. I Googled it. I couldn't find anyone. And I thought, this is either a really good idea or it's really a bad idea. Maybe there's a reason why there's no tax trivia books out there. And so the, my book's only been out two months and sales have been kind of so-so. So we'll see how it goes. Maybe things will pick up, you know, at Christmas and uh, next year at the uh, tax season. But anyway, whether it sells a book or or a million, I'm just happy because it was a lot of fun to research this. I discovered a lot of stuff that I didn't know about. And uh, it was a really fun project. Yeah. So actually,
1: I was going to ask about that. You know, where these topic ideas come from? You know, was it Mostly from what you knew, or were you just going out there and checking for things in among various categories? Basically, what what was your process for coming up with the topics for the book?
2: So I ended up coming up with 10 different topics. You know, each chapter has its own topic. There's 25 questions in each. And what I did was I started with the original 25 questions that I used in that little work happy hour. And I figured out, okay, this looks like it's clearly a history question. And this one's uh, more about the IRS structure and uh, this was more about the audit cycle. And, and, you know, this one's about the tax forms. And this is about the code I had a bunch of questions about the code. And so it just sort of neatly fit. I was just trying to categorize each one. And I came up with, you know, eight or nine right away. And then, you know, politics was another one, because I was, that was one thing I learned was, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize how much the IRS as an agency had been used and, and or abused. My presidents, you know, it wasn't just, you know, one bad apple either. It was multiple ones where they kind of use the IRS as a political weapon, if you will. So I learned so much about this. And I'm not even a history buff, I'm not even like a political, you know, uh, junkie that I'm, it's just, I like taxes. And the more I dove into this stuff, and the history of it, and, you know, the first income tax and how, as Bob was saying, there was a period of time where they had a temporary income tax to pay to fund the Civil War, and, and then that was repealed, and then there was later a more permanent one. So just learning all this stuff or relearning some of it was very interesting to me, and I thought well, maybe other people would enjoy it too.
1: Well, on, on that note, you know, we're heading into the, the gift-giving season. Who do you see as the target audience for this book?
2: So great question. So I'm thinking obviously tax professionals would ideally be a target audience for this book, but it could be, you know, history buffs or uh, just anybody that's into trivia, you know, American trivia questions, because there's a lot of that in there too. I gave a copy to my parents and they are none of the above and they loved it. They loved the chapter on the quotes because they have like a 25 questions on just funny tax quotes and they got a kick out of that. So, you know, really it's a pretty broad spectrum of people that will enjoy it. But I think the primarily the target audience is tax professionals, CPAs, tax attorneys, anybody like that. Now, you, you mentioned
1: you've written some other
2: books. What else have you written about? I kind of write books based on just my hobbies or my passions. And uh, one of my loves is I teach a night class at the local community college at Lone Star College. And I teach business law and I've taught a corporate and partnership tax there as well. And so my very first book that came out five years ago is called Engaging College Students, a Fun and Edgy Guide for Professors. And that was just really based on my experience, just teaching tips, if you will. And so that was my first book. Uh, After that, I wrote two books for authors One was a self-publishing guide. All my books are self-published. And uh, my self-publishing guide, I just sort of threw it together. It literally came out four months after my first book. I didn't even plan to write it. But so many people kept asking, well, how do you self-publish a book? And and so I I published it four months after the first one. And lo and behold, that little book has sold 3,000 copies. I mean, I'm just floored by that. I just never expected that. Then I have a book marketing guide to help other authors sell their book, because believe it or not, marketing your book is even harder than writing a book. And my next book was about um, off-road racing, believe it or not. So one of my passions and hobbies is I like to off-road race. Uh, I'm into the side-by-side like a Polaris Razor. I kind of look like a golf cart on steroids. And we race them to the woods for like an hour and uh, try not to hit any trees or run over each other. You know, it's a lot of fun. And it's something I can do with my son. He's my co-pilot. So I wrote a book about that one. That one's called Texas Off-Road Racing, A Father-Son Journey to a Side-by-Side Championship. And so then my fifth book is this one, American Tax Trivia, the ultimate quiz on U.S. taxation. Well, all right. Thank you so much. It was great
1: having you here. And the book sounds fantastic. Thank you for being our quiz master.
2: Thank you, Dave. I really enjoyed it.
1: Now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Paige Jones. Paige, what do you have for us?
3: Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Ben and Wang examines the different ways the automatic child tax credit is being used by various categories of taxpayers. Dean Zerbe explores how the IRS can crack down on tax evaders and close the tax gap by strengthening the IRS whistleblower program. In tax note state, Andrew Swain examines the important role of moral storytelling in educating listeners about ethics and morality. Billy Hamilton examines New Jersey's efforts to lure film and television productions to the state. In featured analysis, Roxanne Bland examines efforts that states and localities could make to help increase gun control without infringing on the second amendment and citizens right to own firearms. On the opinions page, Robert Goulder wonders whether a domestic FATCA regime would be plagued by disproportional overreach and unintended consequences. And now for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here's Tax Notes executive editor for commentary, Jasper
5: Smith. Thank you, Paige. I'm here with tax practitioner and Tax Notes international columnist, Peter Mason for a special edition of In the Pages. Peter has recently published a new book, Building Better Taxes, which features several of his T&I articles. Peter, welcome to the podcast.
4: Thank you, and hello. I'm delighted to be
5: here. And certainly delighted to have you. So to begin, could you tell us a little bit about your book?
4: Yeah, sure. So my new book is called Building Better Taxes, and it goes to the heart of the tax legislation. It looks at how taxes are applied in practice and just questions if that makes sense taxation should motivate or discourage or redistribute wealth or just all of that as part of a logical government strategy to build stronger trade and better societies. My book Building Better Taxes critiques and challenges current tax practices. It's a collection of articles as you said targeting tax policy and tax risk to transfer pricing and tax people. Now It builds on my first book, Tax Commandments for Business, where I revealed best practices and tips of the trade in operating an effective, successful and responsible tax function. But I try to get under the surface in really both books of practical corporate tax management in an engaging, thought provoking and entertaining way. So my my new book, this Building Better Taxes, is for tax professionals, but it's also for anyone who wants to understand how big business is really taxed in concise articles on hot tax topics. Jasper, in effect, it's the ultimate coffee table tax book.
5: It sounds like it, Peter, and thank you for that overview. So in the time we have left, I thought maybe we'd cover just a few highlights from the book. Sure. So could you first tell us how you dealt with tax risk as a tax director?
4: Yeah. In fact, I've, I've actually dedicated a quarter of the book to this critical area of tax risk. Above all, I believe that risk and opportunity are opposite sides of the same coin. In that sense, a tax professional should embrace calculated tax risks to claim the best opportunities for his business. Put simply, if you do not deduct an expense for tax purposes, then there is no tax risk of it being disallowed. But then you've completely lost any potential for tax relief. We have to be bold when we manage tax risks, as well as being commercial business people in judging the risks we take. Companies design great new products that at their outset have huge risks of failure, but to not embark on that journey would result on zero potential of a grand prize of business success in the market later on. Of course, there are unknown and unexpected tax risks or surprises, and unfortunately, as tax people, these are our tax mistakes and problems. Every tax director has to have some sort of robust tax compliance framework to deal with those risks. But, you know, some will always get through. There are many ways to identify, assess and monitor those risks and indeed mitigate them. I personally favour sort of lean methodology, which I call the three C's. And this systematically looks at the main tax concerns identifies the causes of them, and then deploys countermeasures in a controlled process. Tax people, though, sometimes make risk elimination their sole goal. We must be proportionate with those tax compliance frameworks to not overly burden business. I remember one CFO said to me his tax director had eliminated more risks than he knew he actually had. Now, that is either a poor use of tax time or a failure of communication. So Jasper, it's this balance I discuss in my new book of security versus commercialism in managing those tax risks.
5: And that's certainly great advice for a tax director. What advice from an in-house tax executive would you give to external tax advisors?
4: Well, I think very simply, I would say to be brave. I want external tax advisors to be, you know, my comrades sat my side throughout the life of the transaction, not just when the advice is given. I discuss in my book how to be a trusted tax advisor. And I use this acronym of brave for what I typically expect. So if we start with the B, I'm looking for business focused. A tax advisor does need to be creative, but aligned with the direction of the business. For the R. I want them to be risk-sensitive and prepared to take on risk, as we've talked about, but understand the company's thresholds and parameters for where its risk appetite sits. The A of brave is to be adaptable and agile. Business changes so fast, and we must all be agile and adept at changing fast to keep ahead. V. Is obviously for value and value adding, and the advisor must provide a clear value proposition. Now, obviously, that I have to say, as an in house professional, that's got to be associated with fair and transparent billing so that we know what we are paying for. And then, lastly, the E of Brave is for effective and efficient, and that's really important that the advisor can deliver exactly what was required precisely safely, on budget, and on time. So that is, Jasper, the BRAVE acronym for generating trust, and I think further assignments for those advisors that adopt it.
5: Thanks, Peter. And we certainly hope that's a a mnemonic device we see in use in the future. And one more kind of substantive question from the book for you, is intra-company financing still an effective tax management tool?
4: Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great question, Jasper. I mean, I think transfer pricing and all its related elements is such a moving area at the moment with, you know, obviously the public criticism, shortfalls in government finances, and of course, OECD's BEPs initiative. Now, I cover this across my book in uh, dealing with uh, the Action 13 documentation requirements, management charges, and as you mentioned, intergroup financing. Intergroup financing is probably one of the largest and arguably easiest profit shifting mechanisms out there, but that happens across independent businesses too. It's just not just an intergroup situation and the OECD has updated its transfer pricing guidelines for multinational enterprises and tax authorities on this specific point, but it largely overcomplicates and creates more uncertainty and confuses. All in all, Jasper, this is another death knell in the arm's length principle, which is arguably on its last legs or perhaps last arms. Academics and advisors tend to focus on it as an economic nicety, but practically it's a nightmare for management in business because of lack of certainty. Business typically tends to operate on global product lines and international marketplaces, not national geographies. And this is the constant tension with a jurisdictional taxation regime and a multinational business. And bets II and other developments are increasingly looking at the sort of global pie of profits and allocating them for tax purposes around the world. You know, the sort of global formulary apportionment. Realistically, that's what multinational businesses do. And it's all the time to really sort of break down corporate profits into local tax returns so I have some controversial and provocative views in this book on the likes of intercompany financing I think a greater degree of certainty is needed in this area because you know every business person I talk to is amazed at the amount of time wasted by tax people dealing with really zero value added intercompany relationships so you know Jasper just to somewhat ridiculed the area i wrote a rather rueful poem about transfer pricing in the book which frankly must be the first that anyone's ever done that
5: well peter we can definitely tell even from this brief discussion that your book is full of information based on your extensive experience but we'll give you a chance to do a little bit of prognostication how do you think the role of the tax professional will evolve in the future
4: oh that's a big question Let me give you a sort of George Orwell type uh, view of the future. Obviously we're seeing artificial intelligence and improved ERP systems will probably drive automated real-time tax compliance with practically very little uh, human oversight. Transfer pricing, as I sort of intimated a bit earlier, I suspect might actually disappear as we seamlessly globalize. Personal taxes, Or be withheld at source and credited. Indirect taxes probably flow through government portals like in Italy where there's no tax leakage. And then audits will be virtual and managed by the company's tax robot. So to not become redundant, I guess the tax professional needs to become a business person. Tax people have been developing commercial acumen in the last decade and Now we need to really move on to the front foot and become much more commercial people with tax expertise. I explained in my first book Tax Commandments for Business the huge array of business skills that a tax person must and can develop which takes him or her beyond just tax. And you know tax is ubiquitous involved in nearly every part of a transaction and every transaction and that gives us all a huge insight into the walks of business life, whether it's legal, financial, commercial, but also transactional or operational strategic. So, you know, government tax policy, I think, will always direct business. It will always redistribute wealth and protect our environment and support our societies. But there are huge opportunities for tax people to play their important role in this process. And I discussed that in Building Better Taxes. Taxes is a great profession. And Jasper, it it provides a wonderful potential for career development and to make a real positive difference to our future.
5: Peter, we appreciate that. It's clearly something you've spent some time thinking on. And again, we know that readers of this book will have a lot of very good things to chew on. So before we let you go, where can listeners go to find the book and find you as well online?
4: Well, I've got my own website, which is www.taxcommandments.com. And there you'll find details of both books, uh, which can be procured through through that website. Also, there is a method of contacting me through that, although also I can be uh, found on LinkedIn.
5: Peter, thanks again for taking some time to talk to us today. Well, thank you. And thank you
4: to Tax Notes for
5: inviting me. And listeners, of course, you can find all of Peter's Tax Notes International articles online at taxnotes.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Analyst, for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy in tax notes. Again, that's tax analyst with an S. Back to you, Dave. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W,
1: and be sure to follow at taxnotes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk.
0: Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com slash podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to tax notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.